Hi, I'm Ben Davis. I'm talking to you on the CinePod Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Welcome back, Ben. Where, where did I go? Where'd I go? It's just been a week. We're we're oh. back doing this again. It's oh. been it's been a week since we did it last. So it feels like we never stopped. <laughs> well, you know, the world has moved on. It's pushed on. A whole week has gone by. I know that that's part of the aging process. You know, the the time <laughs> seems to fly by sooner. Not the same way as when you were seven, when it was a week before Christmas, and you know, all oh. you could do was watch the calendar. I, I mean, honestly, like uh, between Halloween and uh, New Year's, just seems like you blink and it's all over. That's right. And then enough of those go by and we all die of old age. It'll be great. <laughs> so, Ben, who is on the show today? Well, it's an interview you did, and I'm extraordinarily jealous with Ben Davis. And you're talking about the Banshees of Inishirin, which I have yet to see, but I cannot wait to see it. It's actually, it's a really good conversation. And yes, we talk about the Banshees quite a bit, but we also talk about some of the other stuff in his career and what a career it is, of course, between all the various projects he's done. Of course, you know, some of the biggest Marvel movies in there as well. But uh, yeah, Ben Davis, uh, he's a real get. I'm really glad that uh, he was on the show and what a charming and wonderfully nice gentleman. It was really great to to chat with him. Isn't it? I got to say, I feel like we chose to do a podcast about one of the nicest crafts and I'm, I'm just really excited to talk to so many of these people. Yeah. And we get into some of like, you know, his his older stuff, too. We, we talk about, you know, from uh, the, the early days. And uh, I really enjoyed Banshee's Vinishirin, which you can go see right now. And I would highly recommend any of our listeners go see it in the theater. And you should go in not knowing anything more than you know already. And we try very hard in the interview to give nothing away. So. Um, so, yeah, go, go see the Banshees. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a sequel to the John Sayles movie, uh, The Secret of Rowan Inish, right? <laughs> Definitely not. Oh. Absolutely not. Yeah, I, I, I see that smirk. You you knew what you were doing. A joke there. That fell flat. That really is. If, yeah. if I got a, do- a dollar for every <laughs> for every Rowan Inish joke that really lands, <laughs> I uh, uh, I would not have a dollar. All right. All right so Ben, what are we uh, what are we talking about this week for our close focus? What's the the topical news of the day? Well, it was something you brought to my attention, and uh, we've been, I would say, as a podcast, as a culture, we've been a little obsessed with the situation on Rust, the shooting of of the cinematographer by Alec Baldwin, which was obviously an accident. I don't believe Alec Baldwin was trying to murder anybody, but there's been a new development in the story in that Alec Baldwin is suing the armorer. That's true. The armor and the first AD is they're being sued by Alec Baldwin. And that's interesting because uh, I can't. Well, thankfully, this sort of thing does not happen all the time, uh, meaning uh, people dying on set and, of course, being being shot. But almost uh, never. We have uh, the film industry has a much better record than like the meat packing industry or any number of other industries where accidents can happen. But I, I'm but I'm only going to go with meat packing. <laughs> meat packing. Yeah, fine. We'll throw meat packing under the bus here. But uh, I cannot recall a time when an actor slash producer slash star uh, decided to sue the crew for negligence. And I think this is going to be something that we continue to uh, follow because, you know, local prosecutors are still reviewing the case and they're determining whether or not to file criminal charges and who those criminal charges will be filed against. And uh, well, can can I just say something? If the stories that I've heard are correct, uh, one of the stories being that the armorer was bringing live rounds so that she could uh, do target practice between takes. She should be rotting in prison. But the set protocol, as I understand it, and I I'm not anti Alec Baldwin in any way, but the set protocol goes something like this. The armorer brings the weapon to the set and shows it to the first AD and shows it to the actor and they both inspect it. And if he was handed a gun and was told it was a cold gun and he put it in his hand and pulled the trigger, then he, uh, in my opinion, still is somewhat culpable. He did not follow the correct protocol. And Alec Baldwin isn't some 22-year-old who just started making movies last year. He's been making movies for, what, 30, 40 years. 
and, and so, not the first movie he's been in uh, with a gun. Yeah. So all, all I can say is motherfucker knows the set protocol with a fucking gun and he knows that it's his job to inspect it. That that is it is part of his job. It's the AD's job. It's the armor's job. It's all of their job. And and also to not actually point it at a living person when pulling the trigger, regardless, because we all know plenty of people who have been injured by firearms on set from having little bits of shrapnel of blanks flying out the barrel at, you know, 300 feet per second. It's it, it happens. It's like it, you it's not the same as a bullet but people get injured from you know these well live... there's a reason yeah. and, I, and i bring this up every time we talk about this when you're on set and you pull out a blank uh firing gun which is just a gun which is a, a real gun. gun everyone should it's understand a that gun. is a real gun yeah yeah it's a real gun you're just putting blank rounds into it when you pull that thing out they put plywood up in front of the cameras they hand out earplugs to everybody there's a whole safety meeting about where everyone's supposed this to is stand the way and, it's supposed to happen and my yeah. general complaint and reason why i would say use airsoft guns and vfx muzzle flash is like you've just every time you fire a gun on set you've just kissed away 30 to 40 minutes of your of your day to a- say alec baldwin's defense I, I before we go down this path too far because ben I, I know you will get on the soapbox and i, I don't want to let you get on the I'm soapbox already on it. again i'm standing on the soapbox we, yeah, okay, right so now I'm, I'm knocking you off the soapbox okay, Here, here's the thing in alec baldwin's defense he claims he never pulled the trigger he says that the gun went off without him squeezing the trigger and if it was a vintage firearm in particular i i mean I, i've heard of this happening this is not that it wouldn't be the first time so uh maybe the gun was cocked as it's, it's possible something could have happened anyway so uh, uh, i'm gonna get back on my soapbox a little bit to say <laughs> Before he put the gun in his hand, he should have opened up the chamber and looked at what was in it. That's true. That's 100% true. All of them should have. The first AD, the armor, Alec Baldwin, everybody. And honestly, if the camera people who were setting up the shot, if they wanted to, they could look at the gun. When you're on a set, anyone on set in the presence of a gun is allowed to inspect it because we there there is no limit to the safety that you need to take around guns. Yeah, it's just so underlined, too, by the fact that so many of, of the crew walked off that morning. Or I mean, or yeah, it's, yeah. it's anyway, but let's not rehash. Let's not oh rehash God. all of this. Uh, but ah, it's, it, but ah. <laughs> we will definitely be continuing to follow the saga of rust and uh, the New York Times has a whole article about Alec Baldwin suing the crew. If uh, you guys want to take a look at it, we will put a link in the show notes over at Cam Noir where you can read all about it. It just came out uh, on Friday. Awesome. So, Ben, let's get to the interview with Ben Davis. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm joined now by cinematographer Ben Davis. Ben Davis, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. You have got a incredible career, and uh, I'm just going to highlight a couple of things for our listeners. And you've got a couple of movies out right now, too, and we'll, we'll get to those in a moment. But you shot the 2004 movie Layer Cake, which, of course, is uh, famously known as the movie which put Daniel Craig on the map in the running to become the next James Bond. You've shot plenty of movies that have spawned sequels like Kick-Ass and Guardians of the Galaxy, plus whole other movies uh, or, or streams of movies for, for like Marvel, like Avengers, Doctor Strange, Captain Marvel, Eternals, plenty of like big action Hollywood movies like The Kingsman, and most recently, My Policeman and Banshees of Inna Sharon. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, oh, yeah, I've been busy. <laughs> yeah, a little. You are prolific. And, uh, you know, I, I know you come from an industry family. I know that your father was was also in, in this business doing, uh, you know, yeah. similar similar sort of thing. Uh, what were the chances of you somehow escaping this industry? What were the chances, you know, you growing up and, and not following down this path? What ma- what made you decide that that this was really the, the life that you wanted to have? Well, uh, to be honest, initially, I didn't want to follow in my father's footsteps at all but uh, you know and I sort of kind of funked out of school and I was kind of messing around I, I was a skateboarder mm. now there, <laughs> there's a minute I was a pro skateboarder I was being paid to skateboard in the UK back in the 70s for a while I kind of thought that I'd be doing that kind of messed up my school and then I was kind of playing around my dad was in the states I went to visit him he was working on a film and he said look come come to the film set with me you can help in some fashion. And interesting enough, as soon as I arrived on the film set, with a day or two, I kind of knew immediately that was what I wanted to do. No, I, I had to say my childhood, I spent, you know, a lot of time, when I was skateboarding, I filmed, photographed skateboarding continually. I was always 
a very keen photographer and made my own little films and stuff as a youth. So it wasn't sort of like it came from nowhere, but it wasn't what I had as what I thought was going to be my career path at all. Yeah, that's a, a pretty radical shift from professional skateboarder to uh, to cameraman. But, you know, as as I was looking through uh, your, your filmography and IMDb and the filmography of your father's, I didn't see a lot of jobs. Actually, I wasn't sure I saw any jobs where it looked like you apprenticed, like in the camera department, working as a loader or a second AC. So it made me wonder if uh, nepotism didn't play an entire part in your getting into the business. It seems like you may have forged your own path. A lot of DPs I know that have children, they end up working related in the department in some capacity for a long period of time to apprentice and sort of learn the craft. But I, I didn't notice that with you. No, I, I did apprentice, in, but I didn't with my I was very angry with my dad. He'd left and gone to the States and I was living in the UK. So I didn't want to work with him. Also, we were divided by the Atlantic. So I came back from that experience with my dad and I thought, this is what I want to do. And I got, I started to try and find work in the film. industry. it was very difficult at the time because I had no qualifications. You needed a union ticket to work. I had no way of getting one. So my first job, I... I saw an advert in a paper for the National Film School were looking for actors, and I rang them up and I said, oh, look, I, I work in the camera department. <laughs> By this time, I'd done two weeks on a film set. They said, oh, we're looking for people, we need people. They always needed people to volunteer there. So I went along and started working as a clapper loader on their films. Then I got a job at a camera rental house in the UK. I got my ticket, and then I qualified. Then I hooked up with my dad. We filmed the World Cup together in... Mexico in 1986 and that was one of the few times I worked with my dad and then the rest of it my dad was doing his own thing he was abroad and I um I worked in in the UK and I kind of made my own way made my own career I worked up I did work up through the departments I was a clapper loader and a focus puller I wasn't a focus puller for very long I don't think I was very good at focus pulling to be honest but I was a clapper loader for a while I worked with some of the great DPs with Dougie Slocum Billy Williams Roger Deakins, Dick Pope, I, I AC'd for a lot of those guys. So, I mean, the initial exposure to the industry was through my father, but the growth through the industry from my first job wasn't with my father. No, he was, he was on the other side of the Atlantic and I was in the UK. I was always, I always loved my dad, but we, you know, we had a slightly difficult relationship. Uh, you're not alone, and I'm not going to delve into my difficult relationship with my father, but yes, that that's a, a recurring theme. Well, I think this is all very interesting. I, I know you've got three kids. Do you think the others will escape the industry? Do you think that they'll, they'll also uh, be interested in this? No, I've got five kids. Oh, you've got five um, kids, excuse me. I've got me. two kids from a previous marriage. Well, my, my oldest daughter is trying to be an actress, so she's sort of struggling away, trying to get work. The other three boys, no. And then there's Roman, who is my son, who's the actor. So, no, the others don't show any interest whatsoever. And would I encourage them to go into the industry? Mm, maybe not. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think that anyone who's got a, a family in the industry, and is your spouse also a writer-director, if I recall directly? She correctly is too? indeed, yeah, so, she is indeed. Yeah, we so it's like, yeah, you're, quite, you're you're an industry family, and but I, I think it's always, it's a little bit of mixed emotions when children decide to, uh, to, decide to go into this path, because you know how incredibly hard it is. Even if you can kick open a couple of doors, it's like, it is a hard grind. It mostly involves freelance work for a very long mm. time, and is not... Um, necessarily conducive to always having the best interpersonal human relationships because of the hours and no. stresses and every, pretty, everything else. It's, it's very rewarding and I, I do love my job, but it's brutal, you know, it is, it is a brutal industry, you know, the hours, you know, as I get older, you know, I used to work film back to back, I'd go, right, next film, back. I don't do that so much now, now I try, I have to take a little bit of time just to recharge physically, because they're pretty demanding. You know. uh, absolutely. I, I call it the work-life counterbalance because I think the idea of work-life balance is a myth in this industry. I think you have to work really hard and then you have to really not work very hard for a period of time because uh, the idea of like being able to split your day is near impossible. So, uh, okay, well, there's cool. also an expectation, isn't there, amongst on production? I mean, I, I do think that I like to think that post-COVID and with the world changing, that that may change to some extent, but there is an expectation that... If you're working on a movie or on a show, 
that they kind of own you 24-7. And I think, you know, I'm hoping at one point that sort of expectation may change, you know, and it's like, okay, well, there's no need, you know, we're not saving lives here, we're making movies, and why are we working 14 hours a day and without breaks? You know, eventually there needs to come, change needs to happen. Well, I I hope you're right. And I know it's not exactly like it is in the US and the UK uh, everywhere. I know it's a a bit better in France. It's a a fair bit worse in China, uh, but it's like there is a collective complaint, I think, of people, particularly below the line, who have to work um, what is often insane hours for uh, large corporations that can sometimes profit uh, immensely off of the off the backs of that mm. labor. It doesn't always yeah. work out that way, but it's it's an interesting business we've uh, all found ourselves in in one capacity or another. But uh, let's Indeed. change gears a little bit. So um, <laughs> yes, <thanks. laughs> let, let's talk let's talk about you, Ben. Let, let's talk about yeah. uh, okay. So I, I mentioned later cake before and layer cake i think is the is the movie that not only did it put daniel craig on the map for barbara broccoli and and for others but uh i think it also put you on the map too i remember it, it being the first movie of yours that i saw and uh can you talk about that movie as, as a potentially a break for you how that how that came about yeah it kind of was i mean i shot one sort of low budget feature before and i was shooting a lot of commercials and i was well established in the commercial world i was shooting some nice work and there was just happened to be that someone gave my name to Matthew Vaughan and said you should meet this guy I know exactly who it was he's a very good friend of mine called Simon Hayes who's a Oscar-winning sound recorders actually but he uh, we knew each other since we were kids and we'd worked together and he was working he worked on Lock, Stock and Snatch with Matthew and Guy and he just gave Matthew and said we'll meet this guy he's good and I went in saw Matthew and we kind of hit it off and that was it, really. Layer Cake. You know, it was Matthew's first directing movie. Mm-hmm. So it was a risk of his to bring me along as first, you know, as a very, very sort of novice DP. Yeah, I look back at that film now and I see some naivety in my work, but I quite... It's interesting when you look at your early work, when you get later on in your career, and you there's naivety in there and you think, oh, no, I didn't do that. But there's also some stuff you look at and go, wow, I... Because I didn't know any better, I did it that way, and actually it's quite good, you know. So so you think, you know, there's a certain risk-taking. It's, it's interesting looking at your early work. But, you know, I'm proud of that film. You know, if you look at the cast of that film, who Matthew cast, you've got, like, Sally Hawkins in a very early role. Ben Whishaw is in that. Tom Hardy. You know, these are all people at the very beginning of their careers, you know, who are Sienna Miller first role you know they're all in very early roles it's an incredible cast daniel wasn't a first role for daniel by any means but but it was like you know you look at the list of the cast and what they went on to do it's quite incredible yeah I'm reminded actually of something that Seamus McGarvey said to me in this in this mm. podcast actually when I told him how much I really enjoyed High Fidelity, which was one of his you know yeah, not, not his earliest for yeah, feature yeah. but one of his early ones, and he goes, oh. I'm afraid you like the runt of my litter, <laughs> which, which I think is, is, is quite true because, uh, you know, I think that cinematographers in particular really have a tendency to be uh, quite self-critical and to think of how I would have approached this or how I would have done that, even though, as I said to him, uh, for me, I think the movie is perfect as it is and I wouldn't change a thing. And I think it's the same with Layer Cake. Layer Cake wouldn't be the movie that it is if it was uh, significantly different. But even though when you look back mm. on it now with, with the eyes of experience, you think, wow how could I have framed this differently how could I have lit this differently you, you, you think you think of all that just you know uh, as it comes through well what's your thought then on sort of reviewing uh, even more recent work do you do you do that with more recent work too do you look at that um, and go uh, yeah maybe, no, maybe. you know what no I look at some of it and I think oh I think you always look at your work and think oh I could have done it better but I do I don't ever look back with regret I think I'm always nostalgic about it. It makes me smile. And I also think, oh, some of it's quite brave. And maybe I've lost some of that bravery, you know. Uh, maybe mm. I'm too safe. You know, they, uh, I... Yeah, no, I, do you know what I remember more? The journey. Mm. I remember make it more than the film itself. I look back at it and I remember the making of the film and the time I had making it and the crew and the people I work with, you know, because really the films, they come and go, but the journey's kind of what it's about now for me. So when I remember, so, I mean, there's a certain film which I hope we're not going to talk about, which is in my back catalogue somewhere, where it's probably one of the worst, it's probably the worst film I've ever made and probably one of the worst films ever made. <laughs> but 
I remember making it as being that we had the best fun on it. It was a wonderful crew. We had such a good time making it that it doesn't matter that mm. it wasn't a great film because I remember that. And the, the crew I know, who I still know now, we all remember it very fondly. But then he said, what about the film? And we all go, oh, yeah, <laughs> let's not talk about that. <laughs> well, I, I think this, this also brings up something interesting in that uh, quite often on the day you think you might be making something really, really fantastic. Everyone might be convinced that this is the best thing ever. And then you see it later and go, wow, was that really the movie that we made? And then I think also that you sometimes go like, uh, this is not necessarily going to be the great thing. And then when you see it later, you go, oh my God, I am so proud of this movie that we made. It, it is, it's like, you, you never know. The editing process is so incredibly important. And I think the idea of production of shooting uh, out of sequence, which you, you really have to do in order to to make any of your days or to do anything like, like that, and the way that you have to, to cheat the schedule, makes it, I think, very, very haphazard necessarily for everyone to play it back in their head as the, at the end of the shoot or that, you know, through post-production. Have you uh, worked on movies that you really thought were going to be a very poor or maybe you had low expectations of that then became incredible at the end that you that you were you were so proud to be a part of? Uh, yes, there's been a couple. Uh, you know, you don't have to name them. them. <laughs> yeah, but there, there's, there was one particular film that even when I saw it, I saw it, I just went, oh, dear. And it was hugely successful, massively mm. successful to, you know, to a, it made an enormous amount of money. Mm. And when I saw it, even, I remember sitting next to my wife and she said to me, oh dear, she said, you need to let me read your scripts before you agree to make them. <laughs> she said that to me. And I'm not going to say what film it was. Yeah, of course And not. then I watched it and I, and, and I thought, oh, and, and because she said that, I was watching, I was like, oh God. And it was a huge hit. Mm. So, so, so you never really know. I mean, I think you know if you're making something that's extraordinary... I think you know. Hmm. Yeah. I think you get an inkling that, oh, this is good. Mm. Now, you can be disappointed in that. Now, sometimes that film will come out and for some reason you watch it and you go, it just doesn't work. Mm. And, you know, if I knew what the magic ingredients were that it was going to work every time, I'd be a producer. You know, I wouldn't be a sure. DP. I'd be, yeah. <laughs> I'd be yeah. living in my mansion in Beverly Hills now as a very successful producer because I knew what the magic formula was. But... But I don't think that, you know, sometimes you can make the scripts great, the ads are great, all the ingredients are there and it just doesn't come together, you know, just doesn't. Well, uh, so jumping forward here, when you started Kick-Ass, did you have any idea that superhero movies were going to become such a big part of your future? After, after I mean, because before Kick-Ass, you, you didn't really have superhero movies. And after Kick-Ass, you have a lot of superhero movies. And I kind of looked at it as this sort of like dividing point maybe in, in your career, too, because the budgets get much higher and it seems like the, the notoriety sort of uh, shifts pretty quickly. Uh, you know, I'm also including some other movies in there too that you know seven psychopaths of course was a big hit and wrath of the titans of course was well known but kick-ass really seemed to be this like turning point especially since it's sort of like a non-superhero superhero movie it's almost like a commentary on superhero yeah. movies but then of course uh, you go on to make a, a bunch of them can you talk a little bit about how kick-ass came, came, <laughs> Me came and to be superhero movies. yeah um well kick-ass Matthew said, this is a good, was one of those, I read the script and I thought, oh, this is good. It, it was just a very clever script. I go, I just love the concept. He goes, well, what? why can't anyone be a superhero? You just go and get a costume. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. really kind of, don't you just get a costume and do something stupid? But, you know, and that's kind of what he does. And, and I just thought, this is great. But did I, I didn't think that was going to, because I look at Kick-Ass now and I really, I don't like the look of it now. I think we overcooked it in the mm. oven. But no, I didn't think that was going to set me on a trajectory of comic book movies. I had no intention of doing comic book movies. And then Guardians came along. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I went in to meet James Gunn and I read the script and I saw the artwork on the wall. There was a lot of artwork and concept work at that point. And I read it and of all the Marvel movies I made, the script was done. It was mm. perfect. Yeah. It, you know, a lot of those mothers, you come in and they're working on the script. And there's a, they, this is a working script. This is happening. This is happening. You know, but this script was done, dusted, signed off, shooting draft, and it was great. And it was kind of like completely out there for their films as well. This It was like, you no, know, it had a talking tree and a 
raccoon in it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, it was like, oh, wow, this is there. And I just thought when I went through it and we started, it felt like we were doing something significant on that film. And I just got on really well with Marvel. You know, it kind of, you know, I liked them as filmmakers. They're filmmakers, uh, you know, Kevin... Victoria, yeah, they're filmmakers. They want to make good movies, and they want to do it in the best way. And they they treat you with a great deal of respect. And I like working for them, so I kept working for them. It, it seems and they mutual. kept coming yes. back. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, well, Guardians, of course, yeah. was a was a massive hit, and it, it may yeah. be my favorite Marvel film of I think uh, ever. It's 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 really a, well. I, I think I, I it's mean, my favorite Marvel film, and I, I'm obviously biased, but you, it's of still course. my favorite <laughs> because I think it's so unique. Mm. That's what I love about it. Yeah. It, it definitely has a different feel. And, and boy, James Gunn, what a meteoric rise for him, too. Anyway, so Guardians comes along and in pretty quick succession, you're given a, an Avengers movie and then Doctor Strange and Captain Marvel. It was it just like they called you up one day and said, hey, we're getting the band back together. We're going to do this again. We're going to make another uh, giant Yeah, they movie. kind of ring me up. OK, and they say, look, we've got these projects going on. Are you interested in any of them? And I'm always trying to take the one that really want to do what. Well. I always want to do one where you're well building to an to an extent, so it's mm-hmm. an origination, as opposed to obviously that's different with Avengers: uh, Age of Ultron. But but I always wanted to do the first of the series, so you get a chance to sort of because I like that part of that aspect of the prep period of those is where you're deciding who the character is, what their world is that they're living in. So I'm always trying to take the ones that have an origination to them of, of something. So they come to me and sometimes they come to me and say, was well, this one or this one? What are you interested in? Yeah, I've been very lucky with that. Indeed. And I'd, I'd like to talk about Three Billboards, because that sits in there in the midst of all of those giant action Marvel superhero movies. And Three Billboards outside uh, Ebbing, Missouri, of course, was a very highly praised movie. It's a wonderful movie. It's uh, another collaboration with Martin McDonough. And can you talk about how that movie came to be? How did you uh, how did you get involved with that? I mean, what's, what's well, I'd, the... I'd made Seven Psychopaths before that with Martin. Mm-hmm. So so in fact, I, I spoke to Martin about In Bruges originally. Um, mm. And I couldn't do it. My wife was having a baby. He told me early, he said, I'm writing a script for Francis McDormand. I'm a bit, I was a big Francis McDormand fan, so I was quite excited about that. And I told him that. And then he came to me with that film. And it's got, the, it's got one of the best and strongest female characters you'll ever could possibly want in a movie. I agree. It was fantastic, you know. So, uh, so I loved making that film. I think it's difficult for someone coming from outside and making a comment on American life and American sort of political culture or whatever. So that's obviously difficult. We stayed in Asheville in North Carolina. I don't know if you've ever been to Asheville. What no, a great never. town that is. Oh, such a great city. So I really enjoyed my time there and working with Francis. I mean, I've made a lot of films now, as, you, you know, as we're talking about now. now I've been pretty busy. Um, most of my kicks I get now are from being sitting on a dolly, uh, looking through the lens, and then three feet in front of me, I have some of the best actors you could possibly see. And watching those people work is just a joy. And obviously, Frances. I'll never forget the day when we filmed her and she, where Frances comes into her house and the priest is there, and she does this sort of soliloquy about gangs. There's a scene... <laughs> There's a scene we shot for that film that didn't make the cut, which was Sam Rockwell coming back from the bar drunk and getting into bed with his mum by mistake or something. It's just like, it's not in the film. But it was hysterical when we shot it, absolutely hysterical. But I'll remember that moment. It's not in the film, but I remember making that movie with a lot of joy. I, I think that the uh, the scenes that end up on the cutting room floor and sometimes that end up on on DVDs or, you know, on the Internet or something is is an interesting phenomenon because clearly someone somewhere decided that it didn't further the story. It didn't further character development or what, mm. whatever it might have been. But some of those scenes uh, like I, I've certainly worked on set for a long time and uh, some of those scenes are incredibly memorable that you feel like, oh, this is an incredible scene. And to, to remove those out, there's got to be some some pretty good reason for that. But do you have other recollections of scenes in particular that you thought, wow, this this scene is going to be amazing? And 
then only to to never never see have it see the light of day. Oh yeah, uh, on every film I think. I mean, on Banshees, we're talking about Banshees at the moment. There was a particular scene we shot with where Colin hung over goes to visit his mother's and his father's graveside. And it was on this beach with this grass blowing and then when we planted this grave, it's beautiful. I mean, it was stunning. We shot this wide shot with this silhouetted figure. It was like, it was, you know, we had a lot of John Ford Western kind of reference points for the film and it was kind of everything. It was a bit of Terence Malick meets John Ford. It was beautiful. And when I saw the cut, I said, Martin, where's the graveyard scene? It's gone. <laughs> it was yeah, heartbreaking, you know, but, but it obviously didn't... You know, the film was incredibly successful. It didn't service the film. In some way, it wasn't right. I, you know, as a DP, you don't get involved in the editorial process. The last person that you actually want in your edit is the DP. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But that shot's beautiful. It should be in the film. You know, the last thing you want. But, but, but you know, it can be heartbreaking. Well, we're going to get into Banshees in, in just a moment here, but I feel like mm. I, I feel obligated. I have to bring up My Policeman and and My Policeman is a yeah. something that anyone with Amazon Prime can go see right now. It's available on, on Amazon Prime and it stars Harry Styles, who is, of course, a, a phenomenon in the musical world. And I think now also in the, the acting arena as well, based on uh, reactions to his performance. Can you talk a little bit about uh, My Policeman, how My Policeman is, uh, came to be? I'd worked on a film with Michael Grandage before. And he came to me with a script. I mean, I thought it was a beautiful script and I thought the film had a lot to say. You know, it's about a time that existed in England where it was illegal. You would go to prison for being gay. You know, Mm -hmm. they would imprison you. And it wasn't that long ago. We're not talking that long ago. And I think it had a very important message to give. And I like the way the film played over two time zones, you know, and it was a joy to work on that film, an absolute joy. It's getting mixed reviews, I see. Um, I personally like the film, you know, and I can understand some of the negative things people say about it, but, you know... Yeah, I, I, and I think that Harry... Some people love it. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 and I think Harry Styles is, you know, his career is safe between, you know, Don't Worry Darling and My Policeman. You know, he it doesn't matter if the, the reviews are mixed. He's certainly uh, going, going places. And um, Yeah, and you have to learn your trade, you know. I mean, you can't just suddenly turn around. You know, acting is a profession, just absolutely. like... Anyone else on the set, there is a certain skill set you need as an actor, you know, and you have to get good at those skills. You know, I'm always talking to my son about that, you know. It's a real skill and you have to learn that skill. And it was really interesting watching Harry work because he's learning, you know, and as the film went on, he got better and better and better. You know, and he's going to be a great actor. He already is a good actor. He's going to be a great actor. You've got to give him a bit of time, you know. Uh, I, I have no doubt. Yeah, I have no mm. doubt. All right, so let, let's talk we'll be about seeing Harry in lots of movies. Oh, he certainly will. Certainly, if these two are any indication. So, and I'm uh, going to say he's a a really lovely human being. I'll tell you that one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. I think Harry. Wow, yeah. fantastic. Mm. Well, um, Banshees of Inner Sharon. Let's get into this because I watched the movie yesterday. I loved it. And um, for people who aren't familiar with it, it just sort of come out right now. It doesn't have the uh, the PR push like a like a giant Marvel movie, but it's it's out there playing wide in theaters. I, I just saw it in Portland and I don't want to give anything away because it's so much fun to not know the important details. But what I will say thematically is that I feel like the movie is about longing and mental health. <laughs> I feel like it's longing like and and of <laughs> course on the the most uh, basic level the male relationships where the friendship is uh, unrequited on one side and uh you know people have different levels of friendliness of how that that relationship goes. How do you think I did in my my description of the movie and and how would you describe it? I think that's that's a pretty yeah, it's pretty good. I mean the interesting thing about the, that film is that I I have a lot of friends of mine whose opinions I really respect have seen it recently and everyone comes away with something different Mm. they all tell me a different thing for me the film is very similar to yours for me the film is about male conflict and about how men can't resolve conflict and never can and how that's kind of reflected in the world we live in and what's going on in the world at the moment and what's going on at the time of the film on the mainland is the civil war is going you know so it's about that it's, I think it's quite significant that the only sort of sane voice is the, the strong female character in, this, in the film. Very true. 
But, but you know, but it was interesting because I went along to the pre- and I didn't make the premiere because I don't think I've ever made a premiere of any of my films because I've always been working. But I came off set and I went along to the drinks after my wife went. Mm. She came out in tears, floods of tears, about oh, how wow. sad it was. But then other people were coming out laughing. Yes. You know, and, and so everyone seems to take something very different away from the film and there are no easy answers in it. And that's what I think is great about it because it, there is an ambiguity about the ending, but there's also an ambiguity about... W- it's, it's very interesting because men take a very different thing away from it than women do. That's what I'm beginning to notice. Well, uh, I will say that there has to be some intention behind the dark humor that pervades this movie. What Did that humor come through on set? Because, I mean, it certainly came through in the audience last night in the theater. Oh, the humor. The, yeah, it was very funny. Yeah. The, you know, some of the scenes are incredible. Some of them are incredibly heartbreaking. Oh, of course. To shoot, it was difficult to shoot on an emotional level. Some of the days, they weren't, you know, it was a hard film to make physically, mm. and I could go into that, but, you know, on an emotional level, it was difficult film you know for the actors and for us to make because some days would be very funny and happy-go-lucky and other days would be like fucking devastating you know I mean I remember one particular day which was the last day of us filming and it's the scene with Barry Keegan without giving too much away again Mm. there's a scene by a lakeside with Barry who plays Dominic and Siobhan it was our last day of shooting and I remember filming that. No, no, the last day of a shoot is always quite emotional anyway, but just filming that, that particular scene was incredibly heartbreaking. I mean, I think it's a beautiful film, and I think I'm glad that everyone takes something away from it in It's Always Different. Some people, it's so funny, and other people, it's, God, it's so sad. You know, like, I, I think the best movies ha- have some of both, though. And I think that this movie yeah. clearly has uh, some of both. If you're, if you're paying attention, the, the, the humor is, is wonderful. And even though it's a, it's a period piece, and I feel like it's timeless, though, because part of the, the story, giving nothing away, is that it takes place in a small community, a small community where everyone is, knows everyone else's business. And if you've ever lived in a smaller community, and, and I would even say that some places like uh, some places that maybe people work might feel very much like that, where everyone is sort of in everyone else's business, uh, your interpersonal relationships uh, become paramount and becomes really critical how you get along because you can't escape from some of the people who you're thrust upon when there are so few people or you're in such a, a close environment that you, you can't get away from them. And this movie plays on that so well. It's like you, it's not a huge cast. It doesn't have a cast of thousands. It's a, it's a very small cast. It's very intimate. And you feel like you get the relationships between these people. And if you were in that space, you couldn't avoid them. It'd be very difficult to avoid, avoid your neighbors. I love that aspect of this movie. I think that it's got a haunting soundtrack that's wonderful from Carter Burwell, who of course, I know has worked with with Martin before and has done some of my my favorite scores. And I tell you that to have your images underlined with that incredible score throughout much of it, it's like, look, this is not a superhero movie. It's not filled with explosions. I'm assuming that you did actually shoot in in a sheer or something like that. Did did was that actually were you on location for for all of that? I can't imagine that you were in a volume somewhere like the Mandalorian faking these <laughs> these vistas. So not quite. Yeah. No, we shot on Inishiran is a made-up name. We actually shot on Inishmore, which is one of the Aran Islands, and an island Conakal. So there were two islands which we created this fictional island of Inishir from. Uh, it's all on location. Uh, there's no visual effects in the movie, apart from a bit of handwork here and there. But, uh, yeah, it's all in camera. Yeah, that's what it was, yeah. Let me ask you, is there just as much satisfaction from a well-composed, beautifully lit, natural light, time of day shot as there is a complicated sequence where you've got cameras flying and moving and stunts and everything going off at the same time? Is the quieter, more static, more contemplative frame and lighting equally as satisfying to you for your work? Possibly more satisfying. I would say, you know, you tend to with those big sort of stunt or special effect sequences, you tend to get overrun with the technicality. And whereas there were moments I spent a lot of my time just going off with a camera on my own and shooting aspects of the island at daybreak. And, you know, I'd go out at four o'clock in the morning and shoot. And I'll always remember those moments as being something very special 
so possibly more. The light is spectacular. I mean, really, wherever you were shooting, it, the, the light multiple times, like when you're, you're these day exteriors and stuff, and, and some night exteriors, of course, but I'm thinking day exteriors uh, predominantly, it's like, wow, what, what incredible vistas. So it, well, it's it, in, uh, we did build our sets, the two, how, the three main sets are all kind of builds or partial builds. They're all, um, they were all on the wild Atlantic coast. No one lives there, by the way. Yeah. There are no, when we went scouting, we thought we'll find these locations. We didn't find one of them because where we wanted our places to be, no one in their right mind would build a house because you're literally facing the Atlantic Ocean. There's nothing accidental in any of the visuals in that film. Everything was meticulously planned and was a long time in the making, that film, um, in the terms of planning to execution. No, we didn't shoot for a long time. I think we shot in 40-odd days, you know, but there was a lot of planning, a lot of thought went into every element. Did, did you know immediately you wanted to do it the first time you read the script? Did this require any yeah. convincing whatsoever? How, I, didn't how did... need to, I didn't even need to read the script. If Martin rings me up and says, I've got a film, I say, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll read the script later. I'll right. just call my agent and tell him I'm um, I'm going to do it, and then I'll read the script. No, I knew I'd want to do it straight away. Yeah, is that yeah? Usually, I don't hear much from Martin for a while. He's very reclusive, Martin. You know, he doesn't. He only just got a mobile phone over the last year or so. He never normally, you know, he walks around, wanders around the world with his pad and a pencil, writing. You know, uh, I admire. And then that. he has his theatre work. You know that he's doing that a lot. But I. That I read it, I was quite quite surprised by it when I read it because I know what I'm getting with Martin's script. I know it's going to have a humour to it and I know it's going to be funny and I know it's going to be lyrical and all those things. But I didn't accept anything quite so moving or quite so sad and tragedy-based. And but, but I was pleasantly surprised by that because I like sad things. I like sad music. Hmm. You know, I think there's, there's room for that in our lives. I know we're all coming out of... A pandemic, and there's this need for oh, don't we want everything to be uplifting? Well, no, <laughs> not necessarily. Uh, talk about taking the script though and turning the uh, turning the words on the page into images. Well, it was quite easy on this one, to be honest, because Martin turned up with a whole film storyboarded, <laughs> so all the pictures were there. He turned up with a stack of storyboards. Now, they're very simple line-drawing, kind of stickmen kind of storyboards. You spend a lot of time actually deciphering exactly what they are. <laughs> Looking there, go, what is that? Is that, a, is that a donkey? No, is that a rabbit? No, it's a donkey. Oh, what's he doing? No, is that the back of it or the right? <laughs> you know, a lot of time you spend trying to work it out, but he came with a, a vision of the film. And we looked at those, you know, we, we had to do 10 days lockdown in quarantine in a house together before we could get on a scout, because it was in the middle of the pandemic. And the storyboards were like his writing. There was, you know, I started to read, and I thought, oh, storyboards, let's go for them. And I realised pretty quickly there was, the storyboards were like his language, just like his writing is. They were very unique, very lyrical, kind of funny, funny shots through little doorway shots, close-ups of animals. They were very Martin. I don't know what happens in Martin's head because I read his scripts and I, I meet the man and I, I read the writing. <laughs> lovely, lovely man. I think, where does this darkness come from? But the storyboards were from that same soul and they had the same... Th so that was pretty straightforward. You know, we worked a lot to those boards um, and they were very particular. And there's a lot of doorways and windows and very specific imagery, which for me was very... John Ford, kind of Western kind of imagery. And, you know, what, what became very evident very quickly was that we would have to build these locations. And, and you're, you're building those sets on location. You're not, uh, you're not building them in a soundstage somewhere. On the Atlantic somewhere. coast. Yeah. Yes, and, yeah, and, they were. And those they rock were. walls, those rock walls all had to be constructed then too? They they were, they're yeah. all real, you know, and, yeah, and, yeah. and the, the thatch roofs were real thatch. It was They were all real constructions. They weren't sort of polystyrene and... Yeah, the yeah. usual. Mm -hmm. There was none of that because they had to then stand up for like six months on the Atlantic shore, you know. So they were proper constructions, yeah. 
Uh, okay, uh, we, we only have a little bit of time left here, and we're going to wrap yeah. it up pretty soon. But the color palette, you got to tell me a little bit about the color palette that you selected for this movie, because it's a period piece, and it definitely feels like a period piece, and all of the production de- design feels like a period. But yeah. I have a feeling that quite often when people think period, they think dreary, or they think, yeah. um, <laughs> oh, muted, or they think coral one filter. And and you have none of that in this. It's a, it's a, no. it's, a deli- it's delightful. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's wonderful. It's like a modern take on an old fable in a way um martin was very particular about that that he did i do not want dreary gray i want the island to be like the island of my childhood that mm. i he spent his childhood you know on those islands and on, in connemara he wanted that look he had a book of if you ever get a chance to look it up john hind is called his postcards of ireland mm. and they're these saturated really colorful cliched kind of images of Ireland, but they're incredibly beautiful and he had that there and he'd sort of throw that on the table and Mark and I would look at it with alarm. He doesn't want it to look... <laughs> but they weren't... He wasn't saying, mm-hmm. I want my film to like this, to look like this. He was just saying, look, I want colour in my film. I don't want it to be dreary. So we spent a lot of time... You know, I mean, that's challenging because on the island, you know, you are blue skies, green fields, dark grey walls. There's not a lot of... So all the colour then has to be brought in in the set design and in the costume. Costume designer is a fantastic job with that. There's her yellow coat, her red coat, his jumpers. There's always these splashes of colour. Then you go into Colm's house and the interior is painted a Van Gogh yellow. All of these are very deliberate decisions that were made in the prep period. Well, I have to I have to give you compliments too then on, on colour when it comes to your night exteriors because some of your night exteriors, I think they're some of the most beautiful I've ever seen. There's a wonderful job of muting, and I don't know how much of it is in, in the grade, but I still felt like I, people were human. I could see, like, you know, their flesh mm-hmm. tones, and I felt like, you know, these night exteriors were all just so gorgeous. Can you, can you just <laughs> talk a little bit about your your uh, approach to the night exteriors on, on the Banshees? Well, the night exteriors were challenging, to say the least, because um, we couldn't get large equipment there. Normally, you put up a night exterior, you could put up a big softbox. Mm-hmm. Spread like you, we couldn't do that because no, there was the winds, you know. I, I couldn't get cranes on the island, so everything had to be done with the how high can I get a tower built or can I? So I went back to very basic ideas of hard moonlight and trying to make it look as real as I think the film had could never look fairy tale ish. I think that would have destroyed the film, it had to look very real. So I tried to get the moonlight, it, it could be beautiful, but it had to be real. So they were challenging. There's a particular scene where the two boys are sitting on a wall in the town. We shot... That was really hard because it was blowing a gale. I couldn't get any textiles up. It was hard light from a distance. And I just had to use... It went back to the way I used to work with a DP when I was younger called Dougie Slocum, who was one of the great black and white DPs, fantastic DP. And he used to like black and white, and that's how he used to like it. It was hard light pointed and shaped in a particular way. And I went back to his techniques. You know, I'd put a, a hard light at a distance. I'd point it where I wanted it and then I'd flag it off things. And we went back to that very much a sort of black and white night exterior lighting approach. Yeah, yeah if you're uh, looking up... Douglas oh, Slocum. Oh, yes. So, well, you know, uh, famous for Indiana Jones and uh, Rollerball. Yeah. And uh, if you look at the indie films that he lit, you'll see they lit with that hard light approach. It's about shadows and shapes. You know, he was a kind of master at it. How do you most like to shape your your hard light? Is it if you can't get if you can't uh, use flags? And I rags? was going well yeah. flags. Uh, I could get small flags up, but I was using a, also a thing called Yashmax. We used to use and nets. Mm. So Yashmax is like a, a metallic kind of. It's not a hard solid flag. It'll give you a. So it's like a net, mm. but better in the wind. <laughs> you see what I mean? So Yashmax and flags and doors, the barn doors on the lamps themselves we use. So is it like a cellulorous almost like a, like yeah. cellular cucaloris? Yeah, like, like a cucaloris, but 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 different but than that. I'd yes. have to show you a yash. Well, they're metal, so you can put them close to the lamp and get them right in without them melting. You know. Yeah, yeah. And they're I, like I, a fine, they're like a fine mesh. A mesh, metal yes, yeah. mesh. We, we call and those... you can bend them, you can shape them. The thing is, the great thing about them, not a straight line, you can actually bend the edge of them to create a shape of them. And then we did the same on the nut, you know, the interiors of the pub are all oil lamp lit. And we went for a very dark 
black ceiling and a dark green wall because I wanted to get this sort of Dutch 17th century painting kind of renaissance look to it. So you'd put an oil lamp in there and then I would hide lots of little dados or small 300 watt lamps up in the ceilings and then I would barn door and shake them off and light. So around, say, Brendan sitting around a table with like five other musicians and some other people, each one of those may have their own individual key light but all directed to look like it comes off the one central light source. So I went back to my roots kind of, I had very little modern control, it was very analogue. Well, I think that's a wonderful place for us to leave it. Uh, Ben, this has been so much fun. I'm really glad that you could spare an hour or so with us. And I really can't wait to have you back sometime in the future after after your next project. So uh, so, actually, before we sign off, I know that people can find your work all over the place. But do you have a website or do you do the social media, the Instagrams? Do you do any of that stuff? Where could people find you if they if they wanted more more Ben Davis in their life? Uh, they can't. (laughs) I don't, I used to do social media and I I don't do much social media anymore. I got a real, I don't know, I kind of went off social media with the whole QAnon thing and stuff. I just thought, uh, I just, maybe just don't do any of that. (laughs) So I don't do social media and I don't have a website, but you know. You're in good company. uh, You'll see my work at the cinema. That's right. (laughs) I hope. We'll put a, a, a nice link to uh, Banshees of Inner Sharon on uh, camnoir.com, which is our, our official website. And this was fantastic. Thanks so much for being on the show. My absolute, Can I leave a message for people out there? Please go to the cinema to say I don't know, not to see anything, because I worry all these independent cinemas near me, they're really struggling. Here, here. You know, independent film is struggling. You know, the big tent poles are great and I, I have nothing against those because they're keeping the cinemas open. But, you know, streaming is really affecting, you know, since COVID, th- these places are struggling. And it's such a great experience. I don't want to lose cinemas from our lives because it would be a devastating loss. Ag- agree completely. And uh, there's nothing quite like the cinema experience. And uh, I-, I hope all our listeners really are cinephiles and, and go out and support their local theatre. Uh, So, Ben, thanks again, and uh, I look forward to the next time we get to chat. My pleasure. All right, so that was Ben Davis. Uh, That was so much fun. I'm glad all of you listening to the sound of my voice right now got to hear that interview. And any feedback on that that interview, comments, critiques, uh, you know, uh, send us an email or go to uh, our website or, uh, you know, camnoir.com or our YouTube channel. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I feel like that Ben Davis interview, we didn't really talk uh, much in tech, but, you know, he does get into a little tech at the end, which I thought was wonderful. But I'm really trying to, to have uh, more interviews that uh, that are like that one. It was, it was great. So well, uh, can, can I say something about talking tech? Because I don't know yeah. that anyone's ever complained that we don't talk enough tech on the show. But when we first talk to cinematographers, when we bring them on and we're kind of doing going through the normal housekeeping we always say this is a show about art craft and philosophy if tech figures into your story feel free to talk about it but we're not here to talk tech and without exception they're like oh thank god i don't want to talk about the LUT that I put on the Sony Venice like it, uh, I, I'm going to disagree I'd say there are a couple of exceptions of people who wanted to talk some tech and then they they still did and it was fine well if we have someone on explicitly for tech reasons that's one thing but most cinematographers don't want to talk about like the debayer process on the CMOS sensor that they use they don't care <laughs> And for me, I do that Monday through Friday, so I'm just glad to actually have some time when I don't have to talk about that, which which is wonderful. Very cool. And now, short ends. So, Ben, it is our short end time of the show. Uh, What is your obsession this week? What are you into? Well, I think that this is a a replay for me, but the first time I talked about it was I had just heard about it, and now I have seen it. And it is weird, the Al Yankovic story, which... If you are listening to the sound of my voice, turn this podcast off and go watch this movie. It is wait, pure, wait, wait. You're telling people to stop listening to us right now to go to go watch. Could, that, couldn't they wait till the podcast is over? That's true. Then, you, it's probably only five more minutes, so maybe ten. That, that's true. Um, <laughs> it is just pure joy. It is so funny, and I think it's directed by Eric Apple. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. It might be Appel. And I should also point out, shot by Ross Reij. Okay. I hope I got your name right, Ross. You did Ross, an amazing job. Ross, you did a job. great job. Yeah, I, I saw it too. It looks great. Well done. 
It looks amazing. It is so funny, and it reminds those of us who were awkward tweens at one time and, and were the weird kid in our class who loved Weird Al that we were actually right. We were we were correct. We were right to like Weird Al. Weird Al, it, like, you know, what he did was kind of like a weird kind of novelty thing. There, there's a great podcast that Slate does called Hit Parade, and they did a whole thing about novelty music and probably two thirds of it was talking about Weird Al Yankovic because of what he's been able to do. But holy crap, he has now done to the musical biopic what his music does to other music. And you might say Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story did that. Mm. Like there have been other uh, parodies of the musical biopic. Fewer as insane as this one. Like for a while there, you're like, okay, they're sort of quasi sticking to the story and playing with it. And then it just flies completely off the rails of reality. It's about the time that he and Madonna start shacking up, which happens in it. And uh, (laughs) I mean... And Evan Rachel Wood as Madonna is just awesome. That, that's she, what I was going to say. She I, nails it. <laughs> yeah. There's there's a party uh, scene in the movie where you've got oh, like. It, it's yes. Yeah, it's, it's spot the celebrity. It's yeah, spot it's, the actor. It's like. But it's, it's, like, like, but it's like Pee Wee Herman and Andy Warhol. And like <laughs> Dr. Demento obviously was there because he's a huge character in it. But it was like one after another. And, it, and they were all played by huge actors brilliantly. <laughs> Andy Warhol is Conan O'Brien, who I was just like, I, I loved. I thought it was great. And and there's so much stuff of that all through the, all through the movie. Like, yeah. You know, cameos. Pat, Patton that are, Oswalt is an amazing heckler. At, at he's like, great. At like the first time Weird Al <laughs> takes the stage and isn't sure of himself. And then he wins over Patton Oswalt's like angry trucker guy. And I, I just I mean, to me, it's a reminder of just what a treasure, a national treasure uh, Weird Al is and how he's basically taken a shtick that he did. That really could have been like a flash in the pan. Like, absolutely, you know, could have been uh, could have been the one eyed one. Throw horde. someone under the bus, but yeah, he could have absolutely been like, a, oh, the, yeah, I remember that guy, and that would have been it. Oh, I was gonna say one eyed one horned flying purple people eater. By the way, uh, did, did that's you, exactly where I was going do, to. <laughs> do you know? Do you know actually that guy's other claim to fame? No, that person made the Wilhelm scream. Really, same person? The same guy who who sang one eyed one horned flying purple people eater was the actor who did the Wilhelm scream. Correct. Whoa, I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah, yeah. little little side trip there. Oh, the, wait a second. Wait a second. For anyone who doesn't know what the Wilhelm scream is, uh, Ben Katz, if you could insert that right now, just so everyone knows that it's the most overused scream in cinema history. Yeah, I, I went through a period of time where I incorporated the Wilhelm scream into my stuff. And then after a while, I'm like, it's kind of a hack thing to do. It now. is totally a hack thing. But yeah, you'll you'll find them in Quentin Tarantino movies and Star Wars movies and all the Star Wars know, movies, all the Indiana Jones movies. Ton- like if you go on on YouTube and do a search for Wilhelm scream. There are people who've put together compilations of Wilhelm scream in everything. And we're talking like it's it's a scream that was done, I think, for like Gunsmoke or something like that. And then it's 1950s. even it's even older than that. Yeah. And actually, there's an episode of a podcast called 20,000 Hertz. And I'm going to ask Alana Cody to, to put a link to the Wilhelm scream episode of 20,000 Hertz. If you haven't heard it, it's a short, wonderful little podcast documentary all about the Wilhelm scream. And you can get the, the full story. And by the way, in that very episode, they have alt takes of the Wilhelm scream. That's right. There's more yeah. than one take that he did. And you get to hear like how clearly that particular scream was the one to go with. You know, uh, <laughs> not to stay on the Wilhelm scream thing any longer, but uh, why <laughs> is about it to stay on the Wilhelm scream why, a little why, bit longer? Why do they call it the Wilhelm scream? There's the, the guy who the, the character, the character in the original movie. I want. I don't remember what the movie was now, but the character they said his name was Wilhelm, and so that that's that's where it came from. Sure thing. But I, so, it turns so, out it wasn't actually Wilhelm. <laughs> So in summary, Weird the Al Yankovic story is awesome. Ilya, what's your short end this week? (laughs) All right. So I have to mention that there is a service out there which tracks podcasts. And if you have a podcast like we do and you register with them, they will give you updates as to where you rank in your particular genre in different countries around the world. This is not exactly my short end. My short end is coming up right after this. This is preface. So here's the thing. Uh, according to Chartable, the free version, which we use to, to see how we're doing around the world, actually gave us some, some pretty interesting information. And I found out 
in various countries where we continue to be downloaded and people are listening to us, even though we're, we, we don't speak the native tongue of many of these other countries, we actually have done pretty well. According to Chartable and the Apple podcast platform in different countries uh, in the TV and film genre, which is very competitive, it's probably the most competitive. You'll, you'll find other podcasts kind of like ours that go into arts and entertainment or other, other things because it's not so competitive. But TV and film, we're competing with like the official podcasts for like Game of Thrones and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But we've done really, really well. And like, for example, in Indonesia, uh, we peaked at number four. We were number four. We weren't quite, you know, we wow. were in the top 10 of many countries, though, not just Indonesia. Uh, Ireland, number five, which I think is totally appropriate for the uh, the Banshees of Inishirin. Uh We peaked at number five at some point, and we've been on their charts uh, as recently as this past week. So uh, all of our recent episodes seem to be doing well there. Uh, Israel, we reached number six. Whoa. Italy, number five. Whoa. The Netherlands, number nine. Holy crap. Uh, yeah, uh, South Africa, number four. What? Uh, in fact, uh, yeah, Hong Kong, number nine. Uh, Great Britain's a little more competitive. We peaked at 28, not not quite as high. Uh, France, very competitive. We peaked at 31. Uh, but Estonia, number two. And number one for the cinematography podcast, Columbia. What? I know. Yeah, we hit number one at some point in Columbia. We were the number one downloaded podcast in the TV and film genre, which is probably, you know, like a million podcasts or something like that. So, you know, I actually I have to do a shout out to what my short end is here uh, is very much related to uh, Poland. We reached number eight in Poland. And of course, in Poland right now is the Camera Image Film Festival. And it is not the only, but it is certainly the most prominent film festival in the world for the cinematographer. And the Camera Image Festival themselves, and you'll hear people say Camera Image, it's the, the pretentious way to say it. And, and you know, it's with like people who say the, people, it's like people who say the Cannes Film Festival when it's actually pronounced, film, it's can, pronounced Cannes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, Camera Image in Poland, uh, turns out the festival has gotten some money together and they're building a massive film center. And I got to say that their ethos really resonates with me because one of the things that I always really was hoping to do with this podcast was to try to elevate the perception of the cinematographer as an artist. And it it isn't always the case. And it's interesting because at the opening remarks of the Camera Image Film Festival uh, this week uh, for 2022, the festival director basically made the same sort of statement that it's not always, you know, the position is not always given the same level of authorship uh, all over the world. But I found out in Poland, cinematographers do receive residuals. And that's like that's like one of the, you know, the big things. I I will never understand why they don't get it here. I'll never understand why the crafts that don't get residuals are, you know, like that actors, actors who are in a loop group who work on a movie for under six hours, they get and, residuals. And by loop group, you you mean someone who went in and looped some dialogue? Yeah, it's like, hey, we need a crowd of people in the background, so just scream a bunch of stuff. Oh, we need someone on the other side of this phone call, so you're going to be that voice. Somebody who works on the movie for literally under five, six hours, they get residuals because it's a SAG thing. But the editor, the cinematographer, the production designer, wardrobe designer, uh, yeah. VFX supervisor, the people who really make the who guide the vision, none of them get residuals, just the writer and the director. And it's because of the way the unions are set up. Anyway, and, I'll, uh, I'll get off it, of that soapbox. But yeah, I, Not in Poland, though. In Poland, some of these crafts and these key people do get, you know, residuals, authorship mm-hmm. dollars that comes back to them, including the cinematographer. As and, well they should. As, as well they should. And I would love very much for that to uh, to change elsewhere, too, because... Let me tell you, I'm taking nothing away from any of the other crafts and any of the other departments. Being the cinematographer on a small production, on a medium production or on a a large production is a very, very difficult job. It it is nothing to sneeze at. And uh, I'm not going to belabor this point here, but uh, but absolutely it's tough work. And the fact that people get the incredible images that they do, they deserve some extra love. So I mean, like, look, there are directors who are visionaries and brilliant and they know how to do everything and and they completely visualize it themselves and there are also directors who don't who are great but don't specialize in the visual side their thing is working with actors and cinematographers come in and they make the movie into the movie and as a director i've been lucky to work with some uh, just awesome dps over the years and i can tell you that every single one of them has saved my ass multiple times I was going to say that also anyone out there who is a first time director, you don't want to have a first time DP. You need your cinematographer because they're going to help you in innumerable ways. Make sure that you get your days done and and they're going to save your ass at every turn. They're going to save your ass. 
And they're going to make sure like, you know, people don't even talk about this very much. We talk about it on the show sometimes, but it's like when you're working with a really good DP, you know, for a fact that whatever they shoot will cut together. It will cut. And when you work with someone who's not good, they will assure you that it will cut together. And then it does not. It does not. And uh, and that's really heartbreaking to be an edit and then having to be in triage mode to figure out how you're going to save a scene because shot A and B. God, I, I, I when I say cinematography, I'm speaking specifically of, of movies and uh, or possibly even of of televisions, people who are working in narrative. But I see it in all different sorts of things, including things that people lump into the cinematography category, which is probably incorrect, like live events where live event shots A and B don't cut together. And granted, there is a person whose job it is, the the technical director, to make sure that these cuts line up and people who are shooting plays and all kinds of other stuff, but they don't necessarily have the ability to make sure that uh, camera A and camera B are matching uh, the way that they should so that those shots work. And that discipline and that skill set is hard won. It's hard won from Mm. uh, a a life of putting it together. So when there's people out there who are are fresh off the boat and they say, hey, I'm going to be a cinematographer, I'm going to be a DP, I'm going to be in charge of this now. I always think to myself that is that's that's very bold step and that it's wonderful that you can convince someone else to uh, pick up the tab for for your learning process here. But it is a yeah. Uh, yeah you you, <laughs> you have a huge responsibility and weight on your shoulders to make sure that the editor can actually do their job at the end of the day. And, and you should get a goddamn residual for it. That's right. And you should. So, hey, Ben, I think that just about does it for this show this week. Where can people find you? Number one place to find me is to subscribe to Audible and check out my new series, Catchers, which is doing pretty <laughs> really? well. They can find they can find you on Audible. Yeah. Yeah. They can find my work there. Yeah. <laughs> And if you if you don't want to pay for Audible, email me and I'll get you a code. Uh, you can Ooh. find me find me on Twitter. I'm at Neptune Salad. If Twitter's still around, I, I've recently started experimenting with Mastodon, which is sort of like Twitter. If there were 25 people on it, if there was no Elon Musk, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, uh, Mastodon's pretty cool actually. But uh, go to BenRock.com. But uh, please check out Catchers. That's what I'm here to say. Catchers, Catchers, Catchers. Please listen to Catchers. <laughs> don't feel like you have to pay for Catchers. Reach out to me. I'll get you a code. How about yourself, Illy? Where can people find you? Uh, they can find me over at Hot Ride Cameras. Hot Ride Cameras is the sponsor of this program. I read something yesterday. Uh, someone on a very popular blog talked about finding an aperture light. Never heard heard of it before, but they heard about it on our podcast. Oh, cool. They're telling everyone how great the, the light was, and now they owned five of them, and how they went to some giant online retailer to buy them. And I was like, you know, <laughs> you could have just shopped at Hot Ride Cameras. You could have bought it from... Yeah, and you didn't have to, you know, sell it's out. It's the and, easiest way to support this podcast is it's, if, it's pretty easy. If yeah. you need lighting or camera equipment and you're going to buy it anyway, buy it from Hot Rod Cameras. Yes, a- absolutely. So I, I was pleased to see that, you know, our advertising was working and we were influencing and molding young minds. But uh, unfortunately, they failed at the end. I, I won't call the person out on this show, but I, I'm thinking about sending them an email saying like, hey, come on. Hey, yo. Hey, yo. But then I saw that they put like affiliate links down too, so like they could make money by getting other people to buy the, the light. So yeah, you know, there's there's always that. Anyway, so so you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, HotRodCameras.com. Ben, who should we thank this week? Uh, let's thank Alana Cody, whose uh, work pile is ramping up as we go into Oscar season. Oh yeah, a big stack of uh, screeners arrived today. And I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that today's interviewee Ben uh, is definitely gonna be one of those considered for best cinematography. Uh, undoubtedly we should thank ben katz our hard-working intrepid editor who makes us sound like not idiots i don't know what he's going to do with the 47 rabbit holes we went down tonight yeah Uh, yeah not idiots going to be tough idiot might might leak through a little bit i'm okay with that (laughs) i'll I'll accept it and uh last but never least uh we should thank Kay's alatrakshi who composed every scrap of music that you've heard on the show uh go to musicbykays.com check out his work Uh, send him any message for fuck's sake just send him a message or you know previously worn underwear anything you want for real anything (laughs) at all but just let Kays know that you uh, you heard his work on here. Uh, he actually, uh, I was talking to him the other day, and he said he wants to make some new music for us. So we have to. Uh, yeah, let's get on that. Let's for let's sure. let's do that. <laughs> so uh, that about wraps it up, though. Illy, you want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. 
Thanks for listening.